1: Independent Melbourne Radio, 3 R.
0: Today's special edition of Backstory, I'll be speaking with much-loved and prolific author, poet, essayist, historian and activist, Tony Birch. Tony is the award-winning author of, I believe, nine books, ranging from poetry to short fiction and novels. His best-selling novel, White Girl, won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing and was shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary, Literary Award. Ghost River won the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Prize for Indigenous Writing and Blood was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2012. Five short story collections under his belt, uh, including Shadow Boxing, Father's Day, The Promise, Common People, and his latest collection, Darkest Last Night, which we will be discussing today. In 2017, Tony's contribution to literature was recognised with the Patrick White Award, which is something that really, you know, essentially showcases the enormous uh, contribution that Tony has made over his working life, which should not in any way be, um, you know, questioned, as it's ranged across so many forms, just extraordinary influence that uh, Tony's had. I am going to be talking about Darker's Last Night with Tony today. It is his latest book, a collection of short stories that revolve around themes that have long occupied his work, marginalised people in the midst of hardship and poverty, animated with a quietly compelling humanism. A young girl resists the violence of her home life. A brother fights to win back his brother's stolen bike. An old man makes an unlikely connection on his way back to country. And A Young Woman Dances, Happy and Defiant in the Face of Dour Disapproval. These stories show the strength and re- resilience of the people at their heart and beat with a sense of Tony's broader work and activism. So I'm very, very <laughs> thrilled to introduce uh, Tony Birch, who joins me now to discuss his book, his writing and the craft behind it. Tony, welcome to Backstory.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here.
0: Now, I have so much uh, that I want to talk with you about, but I really do want to start by speaking about this particular short story collection. I am lucky enough to have read quite a bit of your work and I really felt as though there was an energy in this collection that has lifted it to another level. You've managed to kind of inhabit a lot of of very different voices. I feel like some of them are kind of reflective of the bigger works that you've done, uh, whether it be Blood or White Girl. Um, Some of them are kind of an evolution of uh, short story collections like your first shadowboxing. Some are actually uh, kind of not just riffing off themes, but maybe even directly related to things that that happened uh, or that were were sort of sprung um, out to the world in whisper songs, your poetry collection that's also come out this year. so can you talk to me about this this collection, what it means for you and and what these stories kind of represent?
1: Yeah, thank you very much look, there are a couple of um, important issues and um Themes that came together. I think it's interesting that you talk about yeah, the evolution of even going back to a collection like shadow boxing. So I think that a story in this collection, the bicycle thieves story, which I, I really enjoyed writing, I even called that when I was writing, it's a sort of a shadow boxing story. And it was going back both to location and, and similar times that I wrote about. And that was clearly, clearly because of the story being based on a memory of a shared experience with my younger brother who had passed away before I wrote the story. I think the other issue of um, influence here is I think the, the white girl was was more of a breakthrough for me than I realised. I'd, I'd written female voices before, but I think in writing Odette Brown, um, the Aboriginal matriarch and her granddaughter Sissy, that had an influence on several stories that i wrote in the collection which would be um the manger and flight in particular which are stories where the protagonists are young girls and very um tough sassy young girls yeah cheeky i mean i love the cheek of the the girls in the manger and i think that it's reflective of feeling more understanding of those young female characters which are a bit reflected through experience, having been a dad to now four adult girls. I've got a lot of experience with um, cheeky young women, which is great. But also that I found them doing stuff in the stories that I might have been a bit hesitant to do before. And, I mean, I and I don't mind giving away a slight, like a, when a girl to protect her brother stabs a boy in the thigh with a broken stick, it was just what she had to do. And I, I don't reckon I would have... I reckon I would have come up with a different ending pre white girl, so there was something about the strength of character and I suppose the other issue is that you're right about lockdown. There are two stories which are deliberately related to the lockdown experience one blood blood bank um a love story, and now i am catching a train with thelma plum and they were they they're both short pieces, I think they're about two thousand words each they're both based on observations and experience during lockdown. And I didn't want to make a big lockdown commentary. And I, I think, by the way, it's interesting where we're going to go with novels that we're thinking about now. So I've been thinking about a contemporary novel at the moment and I'm thinking, well, should they have masks on? Should they not have masks on? Should I address the issue at all? Or then once you start to address COVID, would it overtake a novel? So all these things are interesting, I think. But those two pieces were... Cheeky, humorous pieces rather than I suppose more, yeah, there's very serious issues we know with COVID, but I like the fact that in the Blood Bank's a love story, it's based on the fact I only went to give blood because it was an excuse to get out. You know, I, I wasn't being um, you yeah, know, this is part of my civic duty. I just wanted to escape the house. And there's a bit of a play on that in the story of a woman saying to a guy how you know how civic she is, how wonderful she is, you know, if she wants self-congratulation. And in that Catching a Train with Thelma Plum, which I also did a poem of, which Thelma Plum really, really enjoyed, was just seeing this young Kuri, oh, Aboriginal woman, she could have been a Murray woman, in New South Wales, waiting for a train, and the rest of us were all so miserable because it was during lockdown, and she was um, had her headphones on and was dancing on the platform and dancing on the train. And for the rest of us, why is this woman... He can't be doing this, you know so based I mean, on that.
0: yeah, I love and i there's a I had to look this up again because I, I wanted to bring it up while you were on the topic of how you've kind of integrated those little bits of what we've just been through in lockdown there's a uh, a descriptor of the narrator in this who's you know sitting with everyone else feeling glum and witnessing this this kind of incredibly alive young woman and uh you write, I was Mr. Job Seeker Keeper, all hyphenated, and I thought that kind of thing where you've, there's just there is this assumed knowledge or this assumed sort of common experience that you've just worked in there without too much explanation or without overbeating it, yeah. and I think that's really how it nicely sits. There is a strange timelessness to the stories that you write. I actually really found myself thinking, when is this? And mm-hmm. and also that that is not as important because in fact. A lot of the themes you're addressing do have this real sense of a continuity between the time frames that they all happen in. There's both, you know, in a in a wonderful sense of this, you know, ongoing resistance of many of the characters to the the situations they find themselves in, but also the issues that they face are horrifyingly consistent as well. Can yeah. you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, and it, I mean, it is interesting that. I mean, in memory and in, in in function, again, if we just mention briefly um, bicycle thieves, it feels like it is. It feels like a, you know, late sixties, seventies story. And that that's fine because I'm reflecting back on that time. In the more contemporary stories, and probably the stories which are relative, the two stories strongly relative to my my brother's passing, um, Lemonade and Afterlife, they're they're very contemporary. Um, with my work, I've had some quite peculiar responses to people trying to date the work with reasons that, to me, I've never understood. Like people so say, no-one's got a mobile phone in your story, so therefore it's pre-mobile phone. I said, no, well, I just, I'm not that interested in mobile phones. Or you know, When you think of, of a story, I, I don't think I need to get on the phone or I don't think I need my character doesn't need to answer the phone to get other things to do. So they do range across those time periods and I suppose it's about you have to be a little bit careful Um, and I'm I'm referencing the same story again. Bicycle thieves, I'm quite happy to see that and I don't see nostalgia as a dirty word. Um, Some people do. It's a deliberately nostalgic story about my childhood it's a deliberate homage, that title to the great, you know, Italian neo-realist film Bicycle Thieves. Because when I was a kid, if something said what's the greatest crime you could ever commit, it would be to steal someone's bike. Because you know, people had to get to work on their bike. Mm. But as in that great movie, people have to make their living, people have to get from A to B so desperately. And I'm not suggesting it's not as drastic now if you I love my bike. And You know, and my brother had had his bicycle stolen, so this is what it was based on. So a story like that, I see the time capsule in that. But a lot of the contemporary stories, I think it's, as you alluded to, I don't think I need to reference them in the absolute contemporary for people to understand that these stories could resonate. I mean, a story like Afterlife, you know, nominally, it could be set in 2020. It could be probably set in nineteen ninety. And that doesn't bother me. I, I don't, yeah, when I used to teach creative writing, I used to say to students, you want to create an impression of a period, but you don't need to do product placement like historical <laughs> That's It's right.
0: a great way to put it. I thought yeah. Bobby Moses was one of those pieces that really defied, you know, you to think about when this is. And I thought that suddenly having a character look at their phone was a really good moment to make a contemporary audience mm-hmm. go, these things that this man yeah. has to deal with, that Aboriginal people are still facing, yeah. uh, that's now. And I felt like that was, that that kind of challenge was a really interesting part of that story for me. And I'm wondering if that was done deliberately or if that just
1: kind of evolved that way. Well, that, see, that's, and I've done, yeah, a lot of my stories are, what me or Michael, when I say place based, I, I, I reference a physical place. I would deliberately like the stuff I've done around the river or the inner city stories, people would think, oh, that'd probably Fitzroy or Collingwood, which is fine. But what I like about maybe and again it came up certainly right through when I created the fictional town of Dean in the White Girl. But if you go back from my short story collections after um Shadow Boxing, there's often this country town, you know, um, <laughs> And the Bobby Moses story is set on the edge of a country town. Um, I've got a, a story I really like in The Prompt's called Colours, which is set um, in a country town. Um, a, a couple of others. And what I like about it is I don't... These are mythical sort of places that I can't quite pin down, which I like. But the, the point you make there about Bobby Moses is there's also a strong influence on... and people. I don't think they'd be horrified, but I'm, I grew up on popular culture and I grew up on, I liked the notion of the modern Western as in the importation of the American Western popular culture into Australia. And that story, I saw it in that Western, a modern Western mode of this black man coming along the road and the white couple. And when you imagine the white couple sitting on the side of the road in the police car, it did have that more of that sense into that American, you know, memory landscape. And then by bringing them together, the mobile phone was used as a device to show, in a way, the shallowness of the white policeman, not in relationship to himself, but in relationship to his life. You know, he's a country cop. The head cop in town is is an arsehole. He's obviously, you know, messing up on the side with with the guy's wife and stuff. But so his life, in a way, as a policeman is really hollow and meaningless I think what essentially I wanted to do in that story, and it might seem surprising, it's it's too easy for us. One of the things I often say is as an Aboriginal person, you have to negotiate your life every day in Australia. Sometimes consciously, sometimes not. You have to be strategic. You know, in the workplace, I worked at a you know a, a liberal-minded university for many years, but I, I found it a very difficult place to negotiate on a daily basis, just the interaction. There's, you don't know if comments said to you, uh, if you're being paranoid or if people are being deceptive, and it can really mess with your head. So what happens, I think, most Aboriginal people, you have to negotiate your day. And then Bobby Moses meeting this white copper who's sort of already cynical about his job, I didn't want to create a bad copper, good black fella, the copper's going to run him out of town. On that moment on the highway, how are these two men going to negotiate a shared existence, even if it's for 24 hours? And that, to me, is more the reality of the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in a lot of parts of Australia, particularly big regional towns, where when I was doing the research for the white girl, you talk to black fellows and this would what happened in the university, not so much now, but when I was a kid. Your relationship, or your family's relationship with a local policeman, was really important to your survival. And by that, I mean that if country towns had a yeah reasonably good copper, or a copper who was too slack to do his job, job officially, people could live and can live with some sense of autonomy. They can negotiate some freedom historically, and. In that moment, I wanted to say, well, these two men, they're finding a way to sort each other out. And I didn't want to turn it into a story of, of violence or just sort of raw racism. Because I think, again, I think most interactions are much more complex to that and require a lot of um, savviness and intelligence. I'm saying, Bobby Moses, he's playing the copper. He wants mm. that copper to get him out on country. So he knows how to play that relationship.
0: Yeah, that kind of, you know, he's sort of working out where he can push and where to use that that kind of strategic deference, which is, you know, a horrible yeah. thing for people to have to learn. But, I mean, it's a really, the, that story is quite emblematic of what you're doing throughout these, um, these pieces. It's this kind of, uh, as one critic said, a real Chekhovian sort of tone where there is a quiet realism, sometimes there's great, you know, acts of violence or, or big things that are happening more often. Though, the real realization is in these everyday kind of occurrences that are that are kind of moving for their very banality as well. I want to kind of take us from there to to come back to you know three of the stories that you did talk about. Uh, you talked about the bicycle thieves. I want to mention also Lemonade and Afterlife, and these are stories that you've mentioned are based on your own personal loss, your younger brother, um, and you've kind of really dedicated these stories to him. There is this relationship between uh, brothers that comes out here in this quite beautiful way, in very different ways. Uh, Bicycle thieves is sort of something that, again, you could see in terms of uh, of brotherly affection and a brother standing up for another brother, Uh, but also this idea of being a valiant loser, Uh, you know, not fighting a good fight, even if you know that the outcome isn't necessarily going to be winning, Um, I think is a nice sort of metaphor for activism generally is that you've just got to do the deed to show the resistance. Can you talk a bit about these these kind of three stories? You did single them out in the acknowledgements to talk about their significance, and I was quite moved by all of those.
1: Um, well, I think, firstly, the point that you make about quietness is important. So that um, I do occasionally um, write about violence more explicitly, but generally because we don't see much violence. Sorry, we 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 don't see... The violence that occurs around us, we don't witness most of it. So historically, I've written about domestic violence and clearly with the title story in this I have, well, people didn't see it in the street, but everyone knew it was going on. So I feel then to describe it sort of too viscerally or with the lens wouldn't be what I want to do. I want to see how people deal with the, well, the lead-up and the aftermath. Um, in regard to bicycle fees, it's it, it's a sort of one of those crazy real life things that um, my younger brother was, uh, and I've said this many times now, but he was such a beautiful looking child. He was he was angelic. He had these beautiful lush brown curls and big brown eyes. And we always we told him he was adopted because the rest of us had really sort of Dickensian rough heads. And um, he was such a gorgeous child. And he, he got a dragster bike when he was 10 years of age. And when he was 12, it was stolen. And, I, I, at his funeral, there was a photograph of him put on you know, those boards and we were playing music. And it was him the day he got the dragster. And I'd never seen him looking happier than that day. He was so happy. And I got obsessed after the funeral about that theft of that bike, which had occurred 45 years earlier. And I asked my mother if she remembered the name of the boy who'd stolen it. And she told me, and I said it to my mum, I'm going to get him. <laughs> 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 might be dead, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Where, where? So, and I was really angry about this childhood kid we knew and I started saying to people, do you know where that, and I won't say, then they fell from Collingwood and moved to another one. <laughs> so I changed my mind and I went to these remarkable guys who rebuild vintage bikes and we found an original Gregster frame from the same period, sprayed a pillow box spread and then rebuilt the whole bike oh, a so Gregster. Great. And the first Christmas after his death, I rode the bike from my place to my mum's in Collingwood, and everyone in the family had their photograph taken on the bike. So it was just a wonderful way to to think about him. And then I thought, no, I want to relive the story because it is such an important story of 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 loss, but also of rejuvenation. So I wrote the, the story. The other two stories are a little different. I loved writing. It might sound odd because it was the saddest moment, but I did love writing Afterlife because it was based on my older sister's, sorry, my older and younger sister and myself cleaning out my brother's housing commission flat after he had passed away. And we were arguing because I was trying to say to my sisters, yeah, and by the way, his flat was spotless. Yeah, my mum used to go and clean for him because he had serious psychiatric illness and it was in good order. Yeah, we would have left it in good order. My sisters scrubbed it like, you know trauma cleaners from top to bottom not because they were traumatized I said to my sisters we don't have to do this and my si- and this is the way we have grown up as yeah, you know, black style working class people we we're clean people because people are always sort of making references to you know, being savage or unwashed or whatever and we're we're crazy house cleaners so they cleaned the house top to bottom and then we realized when we left there wasn't much of his stuff that we needed. And it was a beautiful, the real life story, is like this story. We put a couple of things out in the street and it was on the housing commission estate in Collingwood. And someone came really politely, oh, don't you need that? No, we don't need that. And in the end, we, we said, I'll come in the house. I'm not joking. <laughs> Except for the box that we took with us and my brother's guitar and his jade plant, they cleaned the whole house out. But but with real respect, our people can come in grab stuff, and the fact that his possessions were being shared amongst people, the community, that's what led to the story. Um, And then the Lemonade story was really to tell a story about a man's guilt over his brother, which is based on the most minor of incidents, and it's the way that I think our brains work, our emotions work, where I have this terrible guilt over my brother, over just, a, yeah, like a childhood thing and they without detail about telling your brother you're going to buy him an ice cream and you nick off for a swim down the river and when you come back, he's waiting for you. And yeah. I, me feeling obsessed with guilt about it, but someone pointing out to me that in all the photographs at the funeral, how connected we were. So all of those, those three stories were deliberate ways of of recovering that sense of myself in a contemporary self and historically. And I, I suppose I have to say that um, I had written a, what I call a grieving and walking essay from the which I begin by a walk I took after his death. I was in Kyoto in Japan and um, I begin with thinking about my brother while I'm walking along a canal. And then I clearly in the poetry collection there's a section of poems with several poems dedicated to, to my brother. And I went through that thing. I, I think, as you would know, a lot of people who have lost family and you think about your work or practice, I felt very uneasy about writing about my brother, but I it sounded I couldn't stop myself doing it or didn't want to. So I got to a point where I'd written, I think, that first story and I, I had to go and talk to my mom, and said, yeah, look, I've written this stuff and I'm sure there's a lot more to write. I need to know what you think if it's published. Because if she said don't do it, I wouldn't do it. But it was such a, I think she was worried that the stories might be gruesome or um, violent or that they would be about his illness, which I didn't want to really um, write about. And she said, no, because there was a a part of my brother's life that people didn't know about, about his vibrancy and his beauty. And... It was like making sure that people understood this other aspect of his life. And that was that was really important. And I think now, I think if I hadn't have written those stories, I don't know where I'd be stuck. Um, and, you yeah, know, like to be brutal, you, you don't want to turn the loss of a family member into art, but nor do you want to think that it doesn't have enormous value.
0: And I do agree with this idea of, you know, you have to be so careful when you're... Uh, you know expressing things that are are personal to you but the wonderful thing about filtering things through fiction is it gives you a chance to add that little layer of distance or to make it something that is bigger than simply that that story or your your grief or your feelings so you can keep what is yours for you i think that's really really beautifully done you're listening to a triple r podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Tony, uh, I'm really hoping that you can do a little bit of a reading for us from one of the stories. I believe you may have one prepared from Afterlife.
1: Yeah, here's one that I made earlier. Um, It's just a very short. I don't like to to read too much. As I explained to Mel, the longer you read, the more mistakes you make. Um, it's just about a page and a half from Afterlife. And it's about um, a brother and sister, adults, um, Andy and Joe, who go to clean the government flat where their brother had um, passed away a week earlier and, and the older brother um, had found his brother in the house. And Angie, the younger sister, um, makes a demand of him. And when I say younger, they're they're both adults um, in probably early 40s. Angie finds the mugs with hot water and milk and nods in the direction of Billy's bedroom. Before we start, you have to show me where you found him. I could hardly believe what she'd said. What do you mean? I need to see where he was in the bedroom when you found him. She walked into Billy's room. I refused to follow her. I'm not going. I'm not doing it, Angie. I can't. She turned around, came back to where I was standing and took hold of my hand. Burying her face in my woolen jumper, she whispered almost inaudibly, I'm sorry. I had always melted when my younger sister really needed me. I placed her hand gently on the back of her head and said, sorry for what? You've done nothing wrong. But I did, Joe. I made certain that you would be the one to find him. I was too afraid to come over here. But you couldn't have. I did, Joe. I took the call from his nurse, Paul. He told me that he'd found Billy unresponsive. He didn't say he was dead, but I knew. Straight away, I knew. I didn't have the courage to be with my own brother. She began to sob and grip my hand tighter. That's why I called you, Joe. I couldn't do it. I'm so sorry. Together, we went into Billy's bedroom. The mattress had been stripped. Taking a deep breath, I pointed to the floor at the end of the bed. The dark blood stain in the carpet was obvious. Here, I found him lying here. Angie wiped her eyes on the sleeve of her jumper. Where exactly? She asks. Well, his feet were at the corner of the bed, and he was lying on his side. Angie lay down on the floor and turned on her side, like this. What are you do Why are you doing this, Angie? Like this, she repeated insistently. Yeah, like that. Lying on her side, Angie opened her hand and lightly clawed at the carpet with her fingertips. She then curled her body into a ball and closed her eyes. I sat on the bed and breathed in and out quietly in unison with my sister. She eventually got up from the floor, sat next to me, and draped an arm over my shoulder, and neither of us spoke.
0: Thank you for that. That's uh from Tony Birch's collection Dark as Last Night, a story <clears throat> excuse me, called Afterlife. I I want to talk to you about the art of writing short stories. You are an enormously uh, generous speaker and writer in that you are, obviously you've shared your talents as a creative writing uh, lecturer. You've spoken a great deal about the art of writing. And I found a, a really quite lovely uh, discussion that you wrote, I believe for the ABC, about you know, some advice for emerging writers. You acknowledge that it is indeed fraught <laughs> to offer advice to people who may have very different styles and needs. But I thought your writing, um, you know, I, I guess the advice that you gave, it's both enormously practical but also things that people don't get told perhaps enough. Uh, you say just to Pracey, you firstly, an important thing to have is curiosity the next thing is a good work ethic and some great writing habits. And finally, and I'll read this one out, the real reward comes when the writing is difficult. When you realise that for the writing to be at its best, for the story to work, you need to struggle to find the right word to shape the sentence, to produce an engaging portrait of a character. I'd love to kind of explore each of these, these areas. Firstly, the idea of curiosity. Why? Can you talk a bit about that in your writing experience.
1: Yeah. And I suppose just to preface it, um, and I don't want to go over this in long detail. Yeah, people have argued about can creative writing be taught. And I know a couple of writers who say it can't be taught. You have to be a natural. And I also know that those people are very bad writing teachers. (laughs) Um quite personally. Um and I think anything can be taught. And that might seem odd. I don't mean it can be taught like I love photography and I love music, but I'm never going to be a good musician. I'm never going to be a great photographer, so I'm not saying we can all achieve excellence. But what I strongly believe is that the real role of a creative writing teacher or creative teacher is to try and create an energetic atmosphere, an environment, studio, which allows people to flourish and attain the best standard they can. And that's the real point, so that I... I, I could start off with a class of 10 young students and they they all have, yes, natural levels of creativity or talent. Yeah, and I remember Roman Carver, a great quote, he said, talent's nothing. Um, <laughs> probably over-exaggerated, but it's not everything. And you you can be in a room with 10 people. And I taught creative writing for a long time, now, And particularly there'd always be a couple of young women who were quiet and they wouldn't say much, but you just if there's something you knew, You thought this person, they've got it. They've got it in here. And their first writings might be a bit hesitant, usually quite humble, but they stay with it. And um, Alice Bishop, who's a great short story writer, I taught Alice, and I don't take credit for teaching her, but what I would take credit for, we created an environment that allowed Alice to become confident in her, in her work. And my sense of being creative... Right, that's what you are doing. You're there to, to give people confidence. You're there to help them grow. And then in relationship to curiosity, I think some of us are more innately curious than others. I believe that. Some of us have innate observational skills that others don't or they haven't exercised, I think would be best to say. So the point about observation and curiosity, again, what I think is it can be encouraged, developed, nurtured and grown. So, again, that's... You can give people really practical skills as a teacher that says, I firmly believe for me as a short story writer, I could look at this collection and in almost every story you you could say, if Mel, you could say, well, where's the seed of that story? Where's the moment that that trigger went? I could point to the finished scene or moment. And what it is is you become curious about something you have observed and you start to know there's something more here. There's something more here to work with. And I used to do the most basic exercise, which there if people say to me, what would you do to start people doing writing or to exercise their writing habit, it's the sketch, the written sketch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um I know I, I was watching a thing online the other day with Stephen King and he says never use a notebook. See, and this is why the problem is giving advice. <laughs> I, I say always have a notebook, but I'll defer to Stephen King, I suppose. But to take your notebook, to sit in a park, to sit on a tram, to sit in a cafe, you see someone across the cafe, and you do a written sketch. A sketch, and it's not photographic, but it might be impressions of their habits or something. What you're doing there is you're developing developing ability to firstly be three dimensional, and then secondly to you start to compose characteristics onto that sketch. So. Such an I, I,
0: interesting thing to talk about in light of the discussion around who is the bad art friend that that this yeah. idea of like basing something on on something you've you've taken from life is is really at the core of most yeah. short story writing.
1: And you 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 were spot on before. It's that you what you you're not trying to produce um, real life, and I mean I, I do. I. I get, look, I get very good reviews. When people talk about me as a social realist, it's such a lazy dated term. Yeah, this is usually coming from people who who are middle class um, English students who did, you know, who were still referring to Marx, you know. <laughs> so that of course a lot of what I think about is based on realism and then the fact is fiction gives you the freedom to take it wherever you like. So that exercising as a writer, I think, is, is really important. So that in the way of the observational school. The second one of work habit, to me, is the key. Um, and, again, I drummed this into my students, and I would say the students, um, I've seen students you know, in recent years publishing and doing stuff, and they're the students that understood or developed their own work ethic. And work you- ethic is simple. It's I say, know when you write best. Know how you write best. Are you a morning writer, afternoon writer, all-day writer? But know when you get value and productivity. I mean, it's, it is labour. It's work. So when a student would say, I sat at the screen all day, nothing happened, I'd say, well, get away from the screen. Go for a walk. If a student said, oh, I can't do what you're suggesting, you know, two hours a day, three times a week, I'm going to cram and do a story next week. And you, you know that's never going to happen. And I used to say to people, I know how busy everyone is, like we are all busy people. If you want to write, you've got to have, and I call it gentle selfishness, even if you could only put aside two hours a week, three times a week, where you had to get up earlier in the morning or later at night, that six hours, if you stick to that, you will, you will write. You will produce writing.
0: It's such an interesting one, isn't it? And you mentioned this as well, that for you, you know, you've observed being a teacher many students who show great talent but who don't have that stickability. They don't have the attrition of just a daily habit or of putting aside time for writing that the people who really become the successful writer or even just make a living out of writing are the ones who who just do it. <laughs> that yeah. bum to just, the seat, I think.
1: And I'm not I'm very pragmatic. There are various um yeah, there's so many um barricades that stop it. And that can be a yeah you know, really they can vary from um, money, you know. I know people would love to write, but they just can't afford to. They're working and yeah, imagine if someone's working a full-time job and it's a very tiring job and they want to be a writer. Yeah, I've, I've just had mouth surgery in the last week, and the guy who did the surgery, he loves, he's an Iraqi, um, originally refugee guy, lovely, lovely fellow, and we've been talking about writing short stories every time I've been to his office. And he would love to write short stories, but his job is exhausting. And so I understand those impracticalities. I understand the um, shocking barriers in the place of uh, that have been historically been in the place of women, um, in the place of First Nations writers. I've I've experienced some of that, but I've also been much luckier than people. But what I say to people is, it's it's something you don't want to, in ten years, twenty years, saying I wished I could have done that. So even. I, I, I do try and encourage people, I know that you have limitations. I know that there are restrictions in place, but try and find that place to let yourself do it. And I was sort of lucky by accident. I hadn't written any fiction until I was, I didn't publish Shadowboxing until I was 49. And when my first three kids were born, I used to do like the middle of the night feeds and if if I fed one of the kids at about four o'clock in the morning, going back to bed after I put the kids back was useless. And I actually found that that early morning period of about four thirty to six thirty or seven, I came to love that. And I'm actually very productive early morning. Like I can't do anything after. You're lunch. like a crepuscular creature. So so it's to say, okay, this is how it works. And I reckon I've always worked full time um, until last year with my writing. And I've had to negotiate it around other things. But I I accept that. And I I think that for most writers, yeah, when people say, um, yeah, if you want to be a writer, make sure you've got a job, as in not a writing job. Because I think for most of us, if you're worrying about money all the time, if you 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 can't do other things with your life, it it can be its own misery. And I think that, you know, when I hear writers who are able to write full-time and usually it's with the support of another person and often those supporters are women who are working, this sounds a bit harsh. I don't think that's fair. Hmm. Actually, um, I don't think, like my. you know, my sense is in a family, in an extended Aboriginal family environment, I've got to contribute right across the spectrum of my extended family's life so that my writing, as much as I love it, it's not the most important thing to me and if my other family situation wasn't in balance, I wouldn't be able to write.
0: Having something else as well in your life saves you from that um, that trope of self-cannibalising your writing life in what becomes this kind of meta self-reflexive thing that a lot of writers end up doing. I want to talk about the the last part of your advice which is, the real reward comes when the writing is difficult. Can you speak mm. to that part?
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, I actually don't think that's complicated for me and it probably comes out of, and a lot of people don't know this, I I, I went to the university in 1988 when I was 30 and a lot of my publishing in the 90s and early 2000s would be in, you know, contesting colonial history and political activism stuff. But before that, I had been a poet with the nine to five collective with people like Pio and Yachi Fanoi and that, yeah group of anarchists in the early eighties. So I was writing some good and some really bad poetry as, I mean, you've got to be able to write some bad poetry if you're ever going to write good poetry. And I, I had, I think as a poet, one of the things as a poet is you, you, you all, well for me, sorry, I'm always frustrated. I'll never quite find the line that I want. So The note that you really want, you just don't quite hit it. And that's part of the life, I think, for for a lot of poets. What I learned from that and what I've taken to my fiction, there is a moment when you're writing, Mel, and you'll, where it be a scene of dialogue, often in description, I think, where you, again, you just, you don't want to overload the page and you just want to have enough of an impression towards the reader through the rest. And, um, you realise you're not doing it well enough and then there's this really moment where you go, oh, it'll be good enough. Oh, I can't be bothered. That's <laughs> yeah. just going to have to be. Well, it's not your laundry lists, you know. Um, that's when I walk away from the computer because I think I'm tired or I'm not mentally attuned. So that knowing that difficulty is also saying, well, today is not a good day to write. To walk away and then go back to it fresh in the morning, and you'll you'll find yourself rejuvenated. And I'll say this because if anyone that I ever taught is listening, they'll go. I've ever mentioned running again. <laughs> I've been a runner for forty years, and it's that thing when you're yeah you hit the hill, and you know this is the hard bit. And I'm not going to stop because it's to stop halfway up a hill is for a runner is really humiliating. So it's about knowing when to stop and when to go, and and don't don't take shortcuts you can't because when you take a shortcut and you're writing and occasionally I'm sure I've done yeah I'm sure I've done it when you pick up the piece of writing when it's published you just think that's a lazy outcome and the reader may not know it but you know it and you're the first person to know when you're writing badly and it's a terrible feeling.
0: Yeah I mean these are all it's such an interesting way that you've you've characterised all of this, because I think quite often people, you know, are sort of interested in in the inspiration for stories, or they're interested in, you know, how you craft your sentences. But this idea of these of these very fundamentally practical elements to writing, that writing is essentially labour. And I think that is mm-hmm. something you outright say, you're not elevating it to some, you know, lofty thing. It is a work a piece of work that someone has done that they poured themselves into there is that transformative or, or transcendent element to it though as well where do you feel like that comes from for you
1: oh uh, I have a lovely um friend Damien Wright who's a, a wonderful furniture maker and a great furniture maker he's made a couple of tables for me and um he's going to he's going to make me a new writing desk I think um We've talked about this about just I so just on the work basis we we believe this in the same way that he's always said. Imagine if he makes chairs as well. He said, imagine if I made a table and a chair and no one ever sat at it. It'd be a terrible feeling. You're doing the work, so it's me saying oh, I write a short story. No one ever read it. The work is unread. The table is never sat at. The relationship between the reader and the writer, or the yeah the the person who buys or sits as the chair, it's in what happens to that chair and table in that story, and that's that's where if it was ever if your work was ever able to be considered art, it's the reader who makes that decision, not you. It's uh, like I think he, my friend's turning to work is art, but he wouldn't make that decision mm. because he's doing the work. So I think that the transcendence is really done by the reader and. I've always said, and I'm you know, i not being overly humble, it's just the, the emotional feeling that the, when I try to talk to people about the value of being a writer, yeah, you, you, know, you can sell, and I, my books sell reasonably well. I've, I've done well. I get really well. I've been very lucky. But sometimes what matters is sitting in a room with readers, like at a book club or at a library, and then talking about your work, and then having revealed what you didn't know, or as you said, transcending or taking the work to a level that you didn't quite understand. That's the, because that generosity you get from readers is probably it's everything. I mean, the yo and know, um, I've only ever had one moment where I felt like i had been stabbed through the heart by a, a, a Raf Epstein on the ABC. Um, a woman was reviewing the White Girl and talked about how much she loved it, and he just said, oh, I couldn't even finish it. It was so boring. Wow. It was a real, and it wasn't, it's hard to explain to someone because it, that could sound like me being egotistical or sensitive. It was like it killed the joy of having done something. Um, I mean, my mother rang the radio station. <laughs> me. Um, I love that. Yeah, no, <laughs> mom, I know. My I would say that to him for up Smith Street or something, she's on, a, she's on one of those motor scooters. She just scooters made a, a big mistake. Motor. Yeah. So... <laughs> And that's, I mean, this is the other thing about being a writer is that understand that the real joy is not owning the work, its give, and I know this sounds like a cliche, it's putting it out there and people are reading it, you don't know where they're reading it, you don't know how they're reading it, you know, there's people in bed reading it, people on a tram. I know someone told me they saw a poem of mine stuck to a fridge at a party, at a student party in Carlton, as you would have done way back. So there, and I said, I don't want to know what happened, next. I, the fact <laughs> that it was on the door of the fridge, and people were opening the fridge and getting a drink, and then closing the fridge, and seeing the poem there. The it's the unknown of that that I really like because it's yeah. The the poem or the story or the book, it has its own life.
0: Yeah, I love that. The this kind of other life of you know the interpretation where it flies to. Before we finish up, and we are coming very close to the end of this uh, this interview, which has gone so quickly, I would like to talk about the titular story, "Dark as Last Night." The mm-hmm. uh, the stories that bookend this collection are "Dark as Last Night" and they're, uh, "Riding the Train with Selma Plum," I think it's called. Riding trains with Selma Plum. They're both really strong female uh, kind of characters within those stories. Where did the you know, I think you have spoken about where Darker's Last Night as a as a name came from. But why did you decide to name the whole collection this and what was the resonance from that
1: first story? Well, the first story I and I, I do have to pay respect, um, the woman who edited my poetry collection, Annie Tephew, um she had um she's a poet, she works at Red Room Poetry in Sydney, a great organization. She um she's sent me a poem when we were working on my collection and there was something in that poem, the mood of it, that just seemed to strike a chord with what I was trying to do and I was writing that um, front story and I asked to eventually could I use the title on the story and then the title for the book and she was so generous in allowing me to do that. The story, though, it is again possibly like a reversion to thinking about my first book, Shadow Boxing, which a lot of it was about violence but I have to say quite honestly that I think that, like everyone, I've been really impacted by the, you know, the rise of voices amongst women in the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement in the last several years around male violence, rape culture, and that I, I did want to make a sort of a, and I say this quite honestly, a male sort of entry into that. I wanted to remember my childhood and the tenacity of my older sister, in particular, in confronting violence in our family home, and also then to bring this um, this sort of almost mystical folk, sort of character, that I'm Little Red, into the story. Who is like a she's a wonderful character because she she's she's alien herself. She's from Europe, a post-war refugee. She can't understand how this this culture operates, and just in that there's a beautiful relationship with her and the girl. Um, also, that one of the reviewers, and I won't give away the ending to the story, but I love the way he, he did describe it, and I hadn't thought about this smell beforehand as wish fulfilment. So I think when you grow up in a house where men treat children and, and, and women so badly, you have all sorts of you know, fantasies about what you want to happen, and then they don't, they don't happen. And I didn't realise until I read that that this was my fantasy revenge. And that's fine because I'm like anyone else, I'm a survivor of terrible domestic violence. And it's a story where you're allowed to have a win. You know, you're allowed to you're allowed to get value. And then thinking about the the um, riding trains with Thelma Plum, it was I'm not sure how we thought about that being the last piece, but yeah, here's a young Aboriginal woman in a hoodie with the the flag and just to be honest, so buggy you. you know, I'm gonna, I'm, yeah, I'm going to I'm I'm going to be out here and it was again a humorous story because um, I take I take the piss out of poets a little bit in the story, uh, the couple on the with their moleskin um notebooks taking but, taking the piss out of yourself a little bit as well Tony as a well, poet. I, I think you're allowed. Exactly was taking the piss out of myself because my character in that was just as miserable as everyone else and I you know, just to finish i wanted it in that story to say there's these three worlds there are the you know poor people during total lockdown who've got to go and wipe the asses of everyone else and keep keep us going there are other people like i was really doing luxury luxuriating at home in my moody pajamas and a cup of milo like i didn't have to do anything yeah i was and then there's this woman who's the only really vibrant character in this moment and I think I see it as both a story of hope but also I had this sort of um, amalgam of images of, I've been doing a lot of work with younger Aboriginal women um, and yeah, you know, interviewing young poets like Evelyn Araluen, Jazz Money, who have both put out collections this year, and I love these young black like, fuller women. They're just so tenacious. Such, she, yeah. She sort of captures that as well.
0: Such a great note to leave it on, Tony. I could genuinely listen to you talk all day but we have no time left unfortunately uh, thank you so much for joining me today on backstory to talk about your wonderful collection of short stories dark as last night
1: oh really thanks for having me i've really enjoyed it thank you so much independently yours triple r
0: 102.7 hi this is mel cranenberg